0: FM
3: Los Angeles 102.3 FM Riverside
0: and one
4: hundred five oh AM Palm Springs Caught that show, uh, Manhunt, Unabomber and um, very interesting case and uh, if you've seen the series um, uh, there's a person there that does the uh, linguistics he's the guy that uh, figured out and matched who the Unabomber was, and uh, we're quite lucky to actually have him with us. Uh, Now, I also want to mention that he's been uh, writing books, and it's a Journey to the Center of the Mind book series, and I believe he's got three volumes out now. Uh, We'll talk to him about that. So who we've got here is James Fitzgerald. Thank you for sitting in with us.
1: Hey, Alan, and uh, hi, Kevin. It's great to be uh, on board with you guys today. Hey, welcome aboard. Thank
4: so, you. So that's, you know, uh, um, of course, the series uh, is getting a lot of attention now, but uh, let's, let's talk about your history. Let's talk about you. How did you get into uh, doing a forensic linguistic or linguists? Uh, how, how did that happen?
1: Well, Alan, um, and since you already mentioned uh, my books, I, I did decide to finally put into writing this a question, you know, similar to yours, that I've been asked hundreds and hundreds of times, both while I was still an FBI agent and now that I'm in retirement, more or less retirement. I'm still pretty busy, but uh, I decided to put it on paper. Even my kids would have questions for me, you know, how did this happen, Dad, and how did you make this decision? So, um, and, and the best way to answer it is, uh, I had parents uh, who didn't go. They themselves didn't go past high school in life, but they made sure their uh, youngest son uh, went to college. But even well before that, my parents were a- um, avid readers. Um, my father, you know, reading a couple of newspapers every day. He always did a book. He liked history, biographies, things like that. My mother was into crossword puzzles, and at a very early age, she taught me how to do crosswords, and sometimes I would grab the paper before her, and, uh, you know, she'd kiddingly Jimmy, you beat me to it. Uh, but <laughs> then she taught me the game of Scrabble, and uh, to this day, I still play. Last night, I was uh, watching the football game and uh, playing Scrabble at the same time. And I tend to beat the computer most of the time, depending on my letter of choice, etc. And then um, uh, and I got to do cryptograms a little bit after that. So, um, I, you know, I went to college uh, Penn State, and I got a master's degree in psychology. But, but you're right. It, it is this kind of a strange turn of events. I really had no formal training in um in, in language or linguistics or anything to do with it. Uh, I studied Spanish uh, for four years, and, you know, even being exposed to a different language teaches you some things about your native language. So, um, but I'll tell you what, too, is when I was about 11 years old, my father, um, my parents would always talk about, to them, the crime of the century. Now, this is well before O.J. in the 20th century. And to them, coming of age in the 20s and 30s uh, in the U.S., um, the crime of the century was the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Of mm-hmm. course, that happened not too far from where I grew up in Philadelphia, probably about 25 miles as the crow flies in, I think it's Hopewell, New Jersey, not far from Princeton. And to them, you know, Lindbergh being the biggest hero in the world at the time, first to fly solo uh, across the Atlantic. And like, you know, five years later or so, his little baby is kidnapped. And who knows, uh, you know, nobody knows what happened to him. And it's the New Jersey State Police where the head. Of the FBI I didn't even investigate kidnappings back then. But anyway, this is like in the early 60s. A book comes out called Kidnap, not the past tense kidnapped by Robert Louis Stevenson. And um, my daughter, yeah, you should read that book. So I went to the Philadelphia Free Library, the local branch,
2: and it was the first like adult book
1: I ever checked out. I think I had to get like a special permission from my parents or something because <laughs> I was usually getting kids really? books out before that. And I brought this book home, and, uh, you know, it probably took me the better part of two weeks to read it. I'm still going to school and all. And I just found it fascinating how an investigation can start with nothing. There's a handmade ladder up against the house. There's no baby. There's a note. And and some reason, you know, doing the crossword puzzles with my mom and Scrabble, I focused on the note and pictures of the note, and there were clues in the note. That the author was most likely a native speaker of German language, which is kind of obvious looking back at it. He uses the word GUT, G-U-T, for good, uh, uh, which, you know, and, and that is the German word for good. So I just became fascinated in at least one part of that investigation focused on language. And I think they had some English professor or someone, he wasn't even a linguist back then, look at the various letters that went in. And for some reason in my life, just language was always important to me. Flashing ahead, you know, I'm a police officer for 11 years. I'm an FBI agent for seven years in New York. I get promoted to profile, the profiling unit in Quantico. I spend 12 weeks in training there, and the first case I'm assigned is Unabom as a brand-new profile. And I had to go back and say, all right, how do I depend on At the task force in San Francisco, my, you know, 15-plus years of being a gumshoe investigator as a police detective, FBI agent in New York, my 12 weeks under my belt now of profiling training, where all of a sudden we had this manifesto thing and these 13 other letters written before that by the Unabomber. Hmm, I wonder if that language uh, hobby I sort of have and looking for clues and how to solve puzzles involving language, I wonder if that'll somehow you know pay off here. And uh, Alan and Kevin, uh, actually, it did. Yeah,
3: <laughs> hey, but but what a welcome, the Unabomber hey, here.
1: Toss it in your lap. <laughs> Well, yeah, and the investigation had been going on for 17 years already. This is 1995. Uh, the first bombing was in Chicago in 78. He wasn't even called the Unabomber until, uh, the early 80s. Just in case people haven't watched the series or, or read my third book yet, in which I devote a long, the long final chapter to my role in the Unabomb case. Unabomb is an acronym which stands for University Airline Bombings because the early targets of the Unabomber I think the first six or so uh, were either universities or airlines or, or some version of that. So uh, so that's where the name came from. Some
3: bu- uh, unnamed,
1: unknown bureaucrat in the FBI came up with that acronym. And uh, not only was the case called Unabomb, but the person responsible for the actual bombing became the Unabomber. So, yes, it was my first uh, case ever assigned as a profiler. And as I was flying out to San Francisco, on um, that on uh, my My maiden voyage there, I went back and forth a lot from Quantico to San Fran.
2: Uh, I'm reading this
1: manifesto, and that's for the first time I started coming up with some clues, some ideas, and saying, you know, this guy's a different kind of criminal, and uh, if we're going to catch him, it may depend on looking at the words he's been using. And that's exactly what I did.
4: One thing I noticed, too, like uh, throughout the series that you're in, as well as... um Going through um, the mind hunters and stuff like that, and profiling, and uh, all of this, Uh, there seemed to be a real uphill battle for you uh, to to kind of almost prove that this was a valid way of uh, you know profiling and finding out someone and who they were. Like, uh, is is it still that hard? Like, it, it looked really hard. Like they, you know, every all the other FBI was just kind of going well. You know, we want real evidence. You know.
1: Well, you're, you're absolutely right, Alan. And the problem was for 17 years, real evidence wasn't working. And in fact, there really was none. This criminal mastermind, who we only knew was the Unabomber, um, he left no clues on the on the devices themselves, on the IEDs, provides explosive devices. Uh, no fingerprints. No, you know, hairs and fibers. No, you know, early days of DNA, nothing there. Um, and the same with the letters uh, that he wrote. Uh, and there were, the first two were actually what I came to call the Ruse letters, R-U-S-E, because they were, they accompanied the uh, package with the bomb in it and they sort of tricked the recipient into opening the package. And then um, after that, he had his little sabbatical from 87 to 93 where you know, he didn't bomb at all, no letters, nothing. And then in 93 came back with a passion with bombs that killed as well as letters that made it very specific. Here's why I'm, de- here's we. He used the plural pronoun,
2: although we were convinced
1: one person. Uh, here's why we are doing this. We are a group called FC. I know, oh, yes, we have a bargain for you in the New York Times. Print this article. So, uh, uh, which I eventually had to argue to get in. But, um, I think your initial question was, uh, you know, change is hard for anyone to accept. And, and quite frankly, I'm there as, I'm brand new with the Unabomb Task Force. We're all FBI agents, but I'm brand new to San Francisco. I didn't know anybody there. Uh, there was one guy I graduated from the academy with, uh, you know, seven or so years before, but he wasn't even on the task force. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm just thrust into the middle of this thing. All right, Fitzgerald, you're the uh, profiler. Tell us what you have here. Uh, well, okay, let me look at some of the earlier profiles written by John Douglas, uh, not coincidentally. And I kind of took those, modified some there, but all of a sudden, um, well, I think what actually happened, and they, they, this was, I think, in the first episode of Manhunt Unabomber, because it really happened, is that I looked at the 1985 letter, the, one of the, the second of the two ruse letters that tricked Dr. McConnell, at the University of Michigan into opening this package, and actually it was his teaching assistant. It wasn't even him. Uh, and it blew up, and luckily they weren't killed but seriously injured. I looked at that letter, and uh, the series went over this real quick, I think in Episode 1. But I was the first person to come out to the task force uh, in all the years that this letter had been in their possession, 10 years. And I looked at it and said, uh, has anybody here looked down the left-hand column of – of uh, of U-2, as I called it, unibomb document number two. And, well, what do you mean, Fitz? And if you look down that letter, from the address to the body to actually the fake signature at the bottom, it spells out four words. Dad, it is I. Oh, wow. And no one has ever picked up on this before. And and I'm always been a fan of E.E. E. Cummings and Lewis Carroll of uh, you know Alice in Wonderland. And... And even when I was a cop, I went through a couple of years, and this is all covered in my second book, uh, some real political malevolence within my department and and some really bad guys harassing me and bullying me. And they would memo me every day on old-fashioned pieces of paper you would type on a typewriter. And I would memo them back after a while. And the only way I could get even with them, because they were in charge, I couldn't really mess with them directly, uh, I would write little messages in the left-hand column like, eat. S-H-I-T, I'm not sure I can say that on <laughs> uh, uh, Go to hell, drop dead, you suck. And uh, these are all little messages I was sending off to this one lieutenant who was really harassing and bullying me, and it was my little way of having little victories every day. Yes, I called him to eat shit, and he does not even know about it. So, uh, so here, I've always carried that with me. I've never done it since then, um, but... Um, I get to the Unabomber letters, and boy, this guy is so clever, 17 years without being caught. Let me look for some clues in the writing itself. There is Dad, it is I. This is like my second day on the Unibomb task force, so like July 8th or 9th of uh, of 1995. And the boss, uh, the big boss, the special agent in charge, said, this is great, Fitz. No one's seen this in the 10 years we've had it. I'm putting you in charge of all the documents in this case. Uh. Okay, thank <laughs> you, yeah. boss, I think. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's, that's, how it's a, that's how it, I know, show, that'll show me to come up with something innovative. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm actually glad they put that trust in me. And I wound up using, uh, you know, I, it, it was a strange time in my life, professionally speaking, because I was very comfortable as an investigator. You know, again, detective, special agent in New York City working all kinds of mob cases, serial killer cases you know, terrorism-type cases, and I, I really thought I was pretty darn good at that. But now I'm a 12-week profiler, and this is my first case, and all of a sudden language, kind of a hobby I've had for my entire life, is what now may be the most useful in this case. So you know what? I, um, I was not a linguist. I, was, I had no formal training in linguistics, um, but I decided to uh, run with it. And before long, that is what actually um, helped solve this case.
3: So Fitz, let's back up just a little bit because you you said a lot, um, and I, I do I, I sympathize with you. You know, law enforcement does seem to shy away from novel approaches, and, and I'm speaking as a law enforcement officer. Um, yeah. For for example, how many cops does it take to change a light bulb? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Usually it's an ethnicity put in that place,
3: which we want. not have
1: But the answer is,
3: what? Change. <laughs> so, you know, and, 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 and we, we know, you know, how behavioralists had such a difficult time in the FBI getting started. But what you were doing was even more novel. You know, forensic linguistics. So, for the sake of the listeners, can we kind of explain what that is? I mean, do you look at syntax? You know, do you look at regional or cultural dialects or phrases or or euphemisms that are unique to certain areas? Yes, yes,
1: yes, and, and plenty more. Uh, good question. And, uh, and and let me, despite, you know, I'm telling people the mini series is about 85% accurate. And um, when Hollywood writers get their hands on something, even though I sat with the head writer, Andrew Cedrosky, a good guy, great writer,
3: and the director, here's the
1: facts, here's the facts, here's the facts, here's an outline of my book chapter and everything, they still insisted on kind of switching a few things around here a little bit. So, uh, the one thing is, uh, there was no real Natalie character. She's sort of a composite of a real linguist, a Georgetown male professor uh a male Georgetown professor in Washington, D.C. I spent two hours with him before going out to uh, the task force because they had given him a, uh, an advanced copy of the manifesto. He went over some things with me and I said, wow,
2: and what are you against, sorry, a linguist?
1: Right, right, one who studies language, okay. Um, but I never actually used that term while on the uh, UTF, Unibom you know, Task Force. I, I may have said I'm doing text
3: analysis,
1: I'm doing a comparative analysis eventually, when the writings of Kaczynski came to us. So um uh, so yeah, so we kind of, uh, they, they kind of morphed ahead a little bit in the, in, the, in the miniseries, putting me in contact with this Natalie character, uh, you know, on a, almost a, a daily or weekly basis by the miniseries, where in reality I had two hours with uh, this professor out of Georgetown, and that was it. So I was really on my own. Um, I found out, and this is kind of, you, can, you have to almost be part nerd if you really want to be a linguist, because you really have to sit and, 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 and read things over and over and over again, and not always. In fact, sometimes, rarely, for comprehension's sake, I remember reading the Manifesto the first time, and I still do this today. If I'm working cases, I still work cases in the private sector with my company, um, and I'll read some threatening emails, some uh, you know harassing emails, or or, or blog um, you know entries on some website somewhere. And I'll find I'll read it a few times and I'm not even sure what the author wrote. So if I'm reading a book at night, you know, for for pleasure, of course I know what the author's writing, where he or she is going, whatever. But I'll read I'll read something when I'm actually being paid to do it. And all I'm looking for um, are some of the things you just brought up about syntactical um construction, semantic usages, lexical features, uh certainly punctuation, other stylistic features. Uh, indicators of regionalisms throughout um, the U.S. or elsewhere. And these are all the things I do when I have an anonymous author and I'm trying to tell the client or the police officer or whomever uh, and say, all right, I think we have a female, probably middle-aged, uh, you know, a native English speaker, uh, perhaps, you know, college educated, uh, not a present employee of your company, but maybe in the, you know, not too distant past, and in more cases than not, the profile tends to be right on the money. The next step is they give me some known writings of that person. And uh, I always ask for other employees, too, so I have sort of a suspect pool. And then I'll go through those emails and look and say, you know what? Based on these anonymous you know, uh, blog entries on this website, this uh, employee number three that you gave me, I think she is the author. So essentially, that's what I was doing at Unibom not knowing it was forensic linguistics. Of course, I knew forensic means, I think the Latin is, you know, arguing in the courts or something like that. Uh, but certainly it's anything to do with investigations, of courts, the legal system, and whatever the next uh, noun is, you know, accounting, dentistry, uh, mm-hmm. language or linguistics, uh, you name it, uh, that's where that word comes together. So uh, I quite frankly didn't know I was sort of, it's not inventing something, at least sort of, you know, bringing the bear or codifying up some work that had been done randomly before throughout the country, including by the professor I met, but usually on civil matters, here was the first time in a criminal case where an actual criminal investigator, that was me, was taking language and trying to apply it to um, the resolution of a 17-year-old case, and as I said, You know, a lot of things had to happen. A lot of pieces of the puzzle had to be put together. But eventually, it is language that brought down the Unabomber and helped us uh, put the handcuffs on Theodore J. Kaczynski.
4: I was going to say now, um, there's a confusing part, um, not only in the Netflix show, but um, other profiles I've talked to. Now, Ted Kaczynski, now, did his brother willingly come forward? and uh say i think it's him or not because i kind of get both stories
1: okay um the answer is yes david kaczynski willingly came forth um i never met david kaczynski in real life and some of your listeners are probably gonna be what the miniseries showed you going to his door no i never did sorry the writers took that and ran with it and uh after a few arguments and refusing to answer emails, we finally agreed on, you know, some compromises. But that's okay. Other ages, uh, Fitz was a composite character in the series, and, and most of what, the, the language part was basically all me. And there was really no Natalie character, uh, who was a linguist herself, um, you know, I, I was, that I was conversing with or consulting with on a daily basis. So, um, So the bottom line is the story got this pretty well, um, pretty, pretty accurate in terms of for the first time, the brand, you know, the internet was pretty new in 95. The FBI had just started its FBI.gov website, I think, only months before. And I'm not even sure the Washington Post or the New York Times had the manifesto on their websites, but the FBI.gov site definitely did. And, uh, it was after it was published in the Washington Post on September 19th of 95 which was a whole other argument that we I had to go through with the bosses in San Francisco. They finally agreed it should be published, and we had to argue it on the Washington, D.C. end with, uh, with the director, Louis Free and Attorney General Janet Reno. And, of course, the New York Times people had to agree to it also, which they eventually did, although we wanted the Washington Post folks to do it instead for logistical reasons. Anyway, um, long story short, it all kind of came together with David, uh, his wife is in Paris, France at a conference, and she goes on this, you know, uh, uh, computer in the lobby of her hotel. For some curious reason, she che- checks on the FBI.gov site, goes into the um, uh, into the manifesto, starts reading it, and, boy, boy, this is some weird language. Boy, this is strange. Boy, this reminds me of, of my brother-in-law, the guy I've never met who lives in a cabin by himself in Montana. <laughs> she comes home a few days later, hi, honey, and I kind of heard this, read the interview Sheets from the other agents and hey honey hey great to have you home we always miss you love you by the way David um, have you read the Unabomber's manifesto yet what you're barely in the door you're asking me about this and uh, it was kind of a a funny scene how it was told to us and um, well no why Uh, you should because all those letters over the years your brother has sent you and I know you saved and I've read them all his things about anti technology and you know uh, you know look. The, the leftists are evil and big business is bad and all this stuff. Um, it sounds a lot like the manifesto. And he basically said to his wife, Oh, yeah, my brother, the Unabomber, Ted wouldn't hurt a fly. You've got to be kidding. So there was no rush or no, um, no, um, reason for him to, you know, go into it the next day. I think three to four weeks went by. Finally, David sat down at his home computer, opened it up, and yeah, all right, well, Ted said that. Well, yeah, Ted refers to that stuff. But he hit on one term that all of a sudden, like ten or twenty pages in, he said, "Oh, he had that OMG moment where uh, he said this has to be Ted." And that ex- that term was was the word "cool-headed logician," "cool-dash-headed logician." Two, I guess, words. The first one. Uh, I guess technically hyphenated, right. uh, as opposed to a dash. But anyway, I'm a linguist; I get hung up on that stuff. So, so um, I have solved cases on whether someone uses a hyphen or a dash. So just to get that clear here, uh,
4: no more writing here.
1: I told you it's ner. I told you it's nerdy sometimes, and uh, don't get me on the counting points of ellipses. That's a whole other part of my uh, my nerdy life. When given a case, I uh, actually counting the dots. But back to David. Yes. Uh, He did realize it. And at that point, he said, I think the Unabomber is my brother, Ted. I haven't seen him in a decade plus. I do have these letters. We don't even talk. He doesn't have a phone, so we don't talk. Uh, He went down.
0: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
1: I'm sorry, where Dave kept all of Ted's writings, and he pulled out this uh, 23-page document from the early 70s, and he read it, and he said, hmm, this looks kind of similar. He wound up getting an attorney. The attorney talked to some people. Long story short, in February, remember, now, the manifesto came out in September. Uh, um, Linda Patrick, David's wife, you know, tells her husband about it You know, mid to late September, Um, He finally looks at it mid-October. It wasn't until mid-February, maybe 20th or somewhere around there, that a lawyer calls an FBI agent in Washington, D.C., because that's where his law firm was, and says, hey, we have a guy who thinks his brother may be the Unabomber, and and they pass along this 23-page document. It goes to the UTF. I'm now back, and, and and the miniseries was right about this. They didn't really throw me out of the UTF uh after you know uh, the thing was published and the surveillance and we did all those things we knew it may take a few more weeks for um or months for someone to read the manifesto and, and possibly identify the author but by uh, mid-december of 95 i had basically finished my task and quite frankly my bosses back in quantico at the actual profile they wanted their, their they wanted their new colleague back because they had cases you know on my desk that were building up so I finally go back in mid-December, say goodbye to everybody in San Francisco, and in mid-February of 96, they fax me, the boss faxes me this 23-page document, which they had done before over some other suspects, and I would look at it, compare it to my well-worn and marked-up copy of the manifesto, say, no, not that guy, Not, not this guy, this 23-page document, and I said, oh, alright, you're faxing this to me, uh, who's it from, what's the background? You know, Jim, on this one, we're not going to tell you anything about it. Just look at it. Let us know what you think. So, just like in the in the mini series, I have to put this in here too. Uh, if you if you saw that scene, I'm in the movies with my uh, in a movie theater with my two older sons.
2: That's right. And I get paged
1: about this document, and I boys, I'll be right back. I'm going to check something out. And then four hours later, my wife walks in. I don't know how she got into the FBI office with no escort, but she did. And there's fits on the floor with, you know, 50 pages of uh, paper spread out, and you left your kids in the movie theater, and that's kind of when they (laughs) split up. Uh, For the record, everybody, Alan and Kevin and all your listeners, I never left my kids in a movie theater. Uh, uh, So it didn't happen that way, but of course it is more dramatic to show it that way and create some of the fiction that had been occurring at that point in my personal life, unfortunately, um, with no other women involved, just me being laser focused on this case. So I look at this document, twenty three pages, pull out my manifesto copy, look at it, and I realize this is like an outline. The twenty-three page document is a like a cliff notes of the um, of the manifesto. Uh and I called the people out in San Francisco and I made it very simple to them. I said this is one of two things and it's not both. First, it's an elaborate plagiarism. Someone took the manifesto that was published in the Washington Post Got some old paper, got an old typewriter, sat down and summarized it over 23 pages, or you got your man. They said, Fitz, we know it's not a plagiarism. It's 20, it's, you know, it's 25 years old. You're coming back to San Francisco. That's when the next stage of the investigation started. That's when they identified a guy named Theodore J. Kaczynski, a former, you know, uh, mathematics professor at Berkeley. Uh, PhD mathematician living in a cabin by himself in Montana, and he became the prime suspect. And that's when they said, "Bis, you're in charge of looking at Kaczynski's documents, comparing them to the Unabomber documents. Good luck." So, in the in <laughs> that's the show, how it all started.
4: Yeah, well, in the show too, you also um, it shows you uh, talking to uh, Ted. Did you actually talk to him like that and uh, visit his little home uh, when it was in the FBI? Uh, with him?
1: Um, no, no, that is fiction. Okay, and uh, oh, I God. argued against that, but I lost. And um, uh, my only interaction—I I spent a few pages in my uh, in my third book writing on this—is uh, was in the courtroom on the day he was sentenced. I was in Sacramento in a federal courtroom, and uh, and uh, we had a very interesting interaction um, uh, for about a minute a minute plus. In the courtroom that day, but no. Uh, what 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 the writers did? I was supposed to interview Ted Kaczynski ten years after his um, arrest and conviction in um, in the the, the the Supermax in Florence, and it never actually came about. And I tell that story in my book too. But I did have a bunch of questions that I wrote down and saved all these years. So the writer took those questions and posed a lot of those. That Fitz was asking Ted in those one-on-one sort of situations. There, they also borrowed from. Uh, Ted was really resistant to his his own defense counsel. He didn't want to work with them at all. He didn't trust them. He eventually realized he had no choice, and we were aware of some of the issues he was causing them. So a lot of those scenes between Ted and Fitz—it's a combination of what I would have asked him ten years later. Again, that interview fell through. Or, and for what his attorneys were going through him uh, with him at the time. And the last part is from a Hollywood perspective, they had two A-lister actors, if not, you know, A-plus, certainly A-minus in Sam Worthington, who portrayed me, and Paul Bettany, who portrayed um, Ted Kaczynski.
2: And they just felt they had to
1: give them screen time together. And I think in the long run, for the telling of this story, I think it made sense. I think it made for a better drama and a better miniseries.
3: Wow. So, <laughs> so it, it, I, I gotta I gotta ask this because it's rolling through my head. And after after all of this was over, have you looked at any other cases that that you know where writings take center stage? For example, the Zodiac. Once once his puzzle or his his riddle was solved, it, the, the the crypto that he used. Had you ever looked at any of that?
1: That's a, That's a good question, Kevin. Uh, but it's um, that's really code breaking and cryptanalysis. and I know I said I do some of the puzzles and all, but that's really a whole different um, aspect of looking at language. In fact, he didn't even use letters. He used characters. Um, mm-hmm. And I did so I never worked that case officially. It was never presented to me. I certainly saw the movie. It was a good movie. And, um, and i I've certainly read about the case. And I don't think all of his, um, you know, secret messages have been, uh, deciphered to this point in time. I think somewhere, I think there's somewhere he says he wrote in English, my name is, and he uses a character, you know, his character representations. I don't I think, think that's ever that's been properly, uh, deciphered. So, um, um, so no that's, that's that's a bit different than what I do but I think you started this uh your query here uh with yes i worked many other cases um in which language played a major role uh I, I'm probably the next big one uh was the John Benet Ramsey case and the three page letter that was left at the crime scene of course it never was a kidnapping it was a murder in the house and then of course after that was uh 911 uh, I reviewed the writings of Muhammad Atta and I was one of the first people, and I put this on paper to say I think he actually fooled his fellow hijackers into thinking they were going to sky, well, hijack the planes and land them somewhere. I don't think they necessarily knew they were on a death mission. Uh, maybe the pilots did, but not the other people that were working for them. Um, and after that, of course, the anthrax case. I put a lot of time and effort into that with the writings. Wasn't a whole lot to go on there, and uh, but most. Um, Most prominently, in which I think I really helped solve a case or at least bring it tighter together, was the D.C. sniper case in which numerous letters were left behind at the crime scenes. And I was the first one to say uh, that I believe we have an African-American person as our sniper. And in fact, we may even have two snipers and there may be an age difference between them. Uh, And that's that's, all just based on the language. I am not uh, Based on the tarot card, which was the first writing left behind the scene of the, of, the, of the school shooting where the young boy was shot but fortunately lived, and then other letters that came out of uh, Hanging on a Tree in, in uh, I guess it was Iceland, Virginia, and then the last letter, which was found up in Montgomery County. And there were some phone calls in between that that they made. So uh, I was the first one to say that, and of course, in every case, and I'm the first one to don't, don't make forensic linguistics you know, the only thing you're working on here. And of course, there were other aspects of uh, of the DC sniper case, and where they were taking it, and they finally pieced together some things from Montgomery, Alabama, and there was a you know an African American male seen running from that, and then you know John Muhammad and uh, and, uh, and, and and Lee Boyd Malvo was identified, and we put it all together from there. So I definitely work cases. They're the big ones that a lot of us have heard and read about over the years, but a lot of smaller. Um, I mean, a homicide case is never small, but a lot of less uh, notorious, if you will, homicide cases around the U.S. in which there were writings involved and in which my, my, my analysis, my report writing, if not my testimony, actually helped put someone in jail for life. So, yeah, basically, and um, any FBI agent knows this, if you somehow come up with a novel, distinctive, maybe even a unique way of solving the case, some method, some some mode, some you know scientific way or or you know artful way, if you will. And you're successful with it, you get an arrest, a conviction upheld on appeals. Whether you like it or not, you become the expert in that field. So, um, in the you know after Unabom and these other cases came along, I realized I'm getting these these cases now assigned to me. Detectives are calling me up. Hey, you know an agent has a cousin in another division that told me you like an expert with, like, looking at letters and documents? I said, uh, well, I guess that's me. Yeah. So um, so bottom line, I realized I was good at this in a very natural and sort of, uh,
2: you know, inherent way, but I realized
1: if I wanted to be taken serious in the area of text analysis or even progressive to forensic linguistics, I got to go back to school. So in my late 40s, the FBI gave me sort of a scholarship, uh, they don't really word it that way, but they, they agreed to, you know, pick up my tuition on, on a semester by semester basis. And I found that Georgetown University had a, a very, um, uh, well renowned, uh, worldwide renowned, uh, linguistics department. And I signed up and I took one course per semester. It took me five years, but I eventually got my second master's degree in linguistics. Uh, from Georgetown University. Thank you, FBI. I do appreciate that. <laughs> and uh, and then at that wasn't until that point in time until I held that degree in hand that I officially considered myself a forensic linguist. And uh, and certainly from that day on I have been. And uh, I've had great success in the field. Uh, some cases you never hear about. Some um, now work with the private sector. Nothing ever goes public, but I help them isolate a certain employee and take it from there. But it's all based on pretty much the same methodology I employed in the UniBomb cases, looking at stylistic features of individual writers and you, you probably heard the term a number of times in the mini series idiolect. Right. Uh and that is an actual linguistic term. I didn't invent it, linguists before me did. And it is a personal dialect. It is how someone uh speaks or writes, which carries sort of their life story behind them if you have enough writing to go on. And, um, you know, if you guys are from the Pacific Northwest or some other part of the western U.S., you're going to have certain features in your speech and writing uh, that may differ from someone from Boston or from the south, from Texas, anything like that. I was born and raised in Philadelphia, and, yes, uh, my uh, my uh, fellow c- citizens
3: of this area
1: still pronounce H2O as water. uh These are people yes. with Ph.D.s. They're medical doctors. They're not dumb people. But we say water. I've sort of corrected over the years since I talk all around the world now and give, you know, uh, presentations and speeches. So I do try to focus on water. But that was a moment at Unibom in the early days there when a few folks kind of laughed, oh, what are you from New York? And you say water. I <laughs> said, no, I'm from Philadelphia. But actually, you're right there. And boy, if they can pick up me being from at least that part of the country, there may be something to this whole thing with this Unibom case. And uh, let's look at some of the distinctive writing in the manifesto, including guys, we haven't talked about this yet, but it really was in paragraph 185, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too. Right. And uh, some other people did pick up on that before me, but I was the first one to focus on it and say, well, this is like the only mistake this guy has made. But ironically, if you watch the, the series, yeah. it really wasn't a mistake because that's how it was first written. You know, in the you know 16th century, early modern English, whatever it was. And then, of course, when I was looking at the writings of Ted Kaczynski, and we really didn't have that smoking linguistic gun that we wanted yet. so I was working with a prosecutor now. And he said, "Yeah, this stuff is good, fits You're coming up with, but it's not enough to make an arrest warrant or even a search warrant." When I showed him the letter that Ted Kaczynski wrote and signed his name, uh, a letter to the editor of the Saturday Evening Post from the early 70s. There it is, he ended, you know, anti technology, anti big business, blah blah blah. But you can't eat your cake and have it too. There it is again. I ran downstairs, showed it well actually I called a meeting of my bosses and this prosecutor, and I walked into the room and the prosecutor said, Fitz, we finally have made our case. Put that in writing and let's uh let's get the search warrant and it all came together after that.
4: Yeah, that's pretty amazing um now, just quickly before we go the the uh, jean benet letter what what was your kind of little thought on that was it was it the mother or who wrote it
3: <laughs>
4: no well i figured once answer. i opened that
1: door guys yeah uh, unfortunately uh if anyone's seen the watch the cbs special from uh september of 2016 and i think you can still get it online um um we put a lot of information out there over two nights but um uh, uh, the Ramsey family was, didn't like what they saw and what they heard, and they sued CBS as well as the seven experts who were portrayed on the air, me being one of them. And I am unfortunately restricted from talking about that case. Sorry, guys, but for one thing, <laughs>
2: uh, at least for
1: now, so far, that I can't talk about.
2: It. Wah, wah, wah. Well,
1: well, well, you can go back and watch the series. And, yeah.
4: uh, you know, see, we'll see I remember I watched it, but we, um, I don't remember. That's that's the truth. I don't remember. We see so we've seen so much on that uh case and that um I, I don't remember it anymore, like what
1: what it was about. Well all I'll say is it's it's a young girl that was killed in her home and it's very sad that it hasn't been resolved. And yeah. We were doing our best to try to do something about that and uh let's hope someday uh you know that can, it, it can in fact be resolved, but I'll I'll just leave it at that.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, Fitz, where can people get in touch with you and and look at your book series?
1: Yeah, um, they can go to my website uh, jamesrfitzgerald.com. Pretty simple, just my name uh, with the middle initial there, and um, there's all kinds of information. I have bonus chapters there from all three books that you know, no charge or anything. Just read them. Uh, my first book, I, I just I've always been a Jules Verne fan, and I loved growing up. I read uh, Journey to the Center of the Earth. So I figured I am on kind of a journey, and I realized that shows about profilers do well if they have the word mind in them. So I decided I somehow had to get mind into the title of my book. So I figured a journey to the center of the mind, and I kept it for all uh, three books. There will be a fourth one, but for now there's three been published. And the first one is growing up in Philly in the 60s and 70s and you know going to Catholic grade school and off to Penn State and some things I did right, some things I did wrong. And uh how I chose my eventual career. When you look back, guys, uh, and anyone who's listening, when you really think about it, some eighteen or nineteen year old punk made a decision that affected you the rest of your life. Of course I'm talking about the younger you. And uh and punk is probably a giveaway to my age. You don't hear that word too much anymore. <laughs> but uh which is what linguists do. We try to age the writer through lexical choices, of course. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a fun book about growing up and my very first investigation is six years of age. And actually, um, uh, it was about a missing red 20 inch roll fast bike that, that was stolen from me, not just missing. And I never did resolve who stole it, but I, through my investigation, which lasted about three days, going door to door, doing canvassing of the neighborhood, whatever, showing pictures of my bike, uh, that I happened to have from a photo album. Uh, I wound up finding the bike three days later, but I am still looking for the guy that it. So if you're out there listening to something weird media, (laughs) I'm coming after you. Um, So book one ends with me graduating the Pennsylvania State Police Academy. um, And the entirety of book two is my 11 years as a police officer in suburban Philadelphia in a town called Ben Salem. And and it's all kinds of cops and robbers stuff, gunplay, car cases. I chased two brand new Transams one night. That was a fun evening, and um, and, uh, and people can read about that. But um, uh, but also a lot of political um, uh, issues right in the middle of it with politicians being arrested for selling meth and P two P, PCP, and all that stuff. And how, how how dysfunctional the PD got for a while. But I eventually did what I had to do, and including writing those secret memos I was talking about. Uh, and I, and I got through it. And book three, um, uh, is my first day, uh, in the FBI at the Academy. And the, there's a popular show out there now called Quantico, which, once again, Hollywood sort of takes some liberties with that. So the first three chapters are what it's really like to go through the FBI Academy. And, uh, I know that was the late 80s, but,
4: and, you know, some of the
1: training blocks have changed, whatever, but it's the same building. The agents, you know, still dress alike. I was only there, I was there back in September. And uh, I said, oh, that was me, you know, some 30 years ago. So the first three chapters is about that. The next 15 or so is my uh, adventures in New York City, where I worked some mob cases, and uh, an FBI agent pedophile we had to arrest, and oh, a serial killer, killer case. And uh, yeah, and I mean, just about every kind of criminal case. I was there for the first World Center, World Trade Center bombing. Uh, other folks solved it, but I was there the first few days helping out. And then the last long chapter. Um, is my role in the, uh, Unabomb case. So again, it's, they're all called a journey to the center of the mind, book one, book two, book three. If you go to my website, there's a thing you can fill out and I'll actually mail you a, a signed copy of the book. Uh, you know, once the check is received and stuff like that. So there is a way to get it that way. You can also get it on uh, certainly Amazon, Barnes and Noble. It is in some bookstores. Um, so, um, there's at least, you know, three or four different ways to get it there, but just uh, contact me on my website and, uh, and uh, we can go from there.
4: Great, and of course we'll have a link to our webpage as well, and and the station page uh, when it's up. Great, great. So uh, it's certainly a pleasure to have you here. I'm, I think we could talk to you forever. Um, so <laughs> yeah, if I
1: can quickly plug. I yeah. guys, quickly plug two more shows coming up. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be uh, one of the co one of the co experts on a show called Notorious that'll air on Reels uh, in the late winter, early spring, one-word title, Notorious. And we there's 10 episodes, and we kind of uh, assess and profile and break down like uh, 10 different uh, bad guys over the last 20 years or so, from D.B. Cooper to uh, Ted Kaczynski to Jared Fogel to Anthony Weiner. It's kind of an eclectic choice of uh, folks there.
3: I was and actually
1: we're um <laughs> <laughs> it, it is, and that's what attracted me to the show, so it was kind of fun to uh, do that, including a woman named Blanc- Blanco. Who was like the only head, the only female head of a drug cartel in uh, Columbia and southern Florida back in the eighties. And I actually do some uh, research on her and that she's a very interesting character and responsible for a lot of deaths. And the other show is we're doing a season two of the case of, so it was the case of John Denae Ramsey, season one. This will be the case of Kaylee Anthony, the young girl from 2008, of course, who was missing, her body found, her mother arrested acquitted. We're sort of reinvestigating that case, bringing back the investigators, prosecutors, witnesses, other folks, and uh, I'm actually in Florida. I was in Florida a few days earlier this week. I'll be back next week, again in January, and uh, there's a lot of documents and spoken words and 911 calls that I'm giving sort of a linguistic analysis of those. So, so uh, that'll be on the Oxygen Network sometime, I think, in April of 2018. So, Great. Have your listeners uh, keep on top of this. Maybe we can talk again. Oh yeah, sometime. we actually uh, I was going to say, and, we uh,
4: you on and and and, and work it. Sure, we, we love those cases. And uh, wow, that's that's really good. Um, did you? Are, are you going to get to talk to uh, uh, Anthony, the mother, Casey Anthony?
1: We're still. Um, the producers are still working on a few of those things. Uh, there are some people they've reached out to and have agreed, but I'm not at liberty to go into all that. But we definitely have investigators. I think Jeff Ash is one of the prosecutors. Uh, he's already involved. There's a FBI agent who's still in the, uh, in the bureau and he's going to be talking about it because he was involved in the case. I was already out of the bureau then, so I played no direct role. My good friend, Jim Clemente, he, uh, he's a, he's one of the writers for Criminal Minds. I also, I also work on that show as a technical advisor. Um, but he's one of the executive producers of this show and, uh, he was still in the FBI in 2008 and he did uh, assist, uh, the investigators when they came to Quantico on that matter. But uh, uh, obviously the case didn't go exactly where uh, uh, <laughs> law enforcement wanted it, but that's, we're going to try to work through it again and see what we can come up with.
4: That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for being on the show.
1: Alan and Kevin, you are very welcome. Um, something Weird Media is my new friends now, so I, I yeah. uh, hope to hear from you guys again.
3: Absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you will. will.